Good afternoon, ladies. It is a great honor and pleasure to introduce our next speaker this afternoon, Ms. Star Parker. Ms. Parker will be delivering her speech titled, A Conservative Response to Progressive Rage on Race Matters. As identity politics continues to polarize our nation, conservatives often question how we should understand progressive views on race and react to the left's attempts to further divide Americans. I could not think of a more qualified woman to speak to us on this topic today than Ms. Parker. She has a distinguished career in both the private and public sectors. In 1995, she founded the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, or CURE, with the purpose of consulting legislators on how to give America's disadvantaged a hand up rather than a hand out. But her influence did not stop there. In 2017, she brought her ideas to Washington and joined the White House Opportunity Initiative Advisory Team, where she continued sharing free market policy measures to aid those in impoverished communities. One year later, former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell appointed her to the U.S. Frederick Douglass Bicentennial Commission. And in 2020, former President Donald Trump appointed her to the California Advisory Committee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. In addition to this impressive list of achievements, Ms. Parker holds a bachelor's degree in marketing and international business from Woodbury University and, and has received numerous awards and commendations for her work on public policy issues. In 2016, CPAC honored her as a Ronald Reagan Foot Soldier of the Year. Ms. Parker was also the recipient of the Groundswell Impact Award in 2017, and the following year, Bot Radio Network presented her with its annual Queen Esther Award. Ms. Parker is a regular commentator on national television and radio networks, including the BBC and Fox News, as well as the author of several books, including Necessary Noise, How Donald Trump Inflames the Culture War and Why This is Good News for America, and Uncle Sam's Plantation, How Big, How Big Government Enslaves America's Poor and What We Can Do About It. Serving on the board of directors of both the National Religious Broadcasters and the Leadership Institute, Ms. Parker is active in aiding organizations that impact our nation's culture with a particular focus on addressing issues facing younger generations. To date, Ms. Parker has spoken on more than 225 college campuses, including Harvard University, UC Berkeley, and UCLA, and continues to be invited as a guest speaker at a variety of schools. Ladies, please join me in extending a warm welcome to Ms. Star Parker. Thank you. Yeah, did you hear that? I've already been on 200 and something colleges, and so I asked the Lord, never send me to another, especially not in today's environment. But when Michelle asked for me to come here, I'm like, I have to, I've got to go. But usually what happens then is they want me on college campuses. But I got to tell you something. While we were in the middle of COVID, I had stopped traveling, like most had stopped traveling. So, um, I had to do something with my time, so I launched a television show, a weekly show. It's called Cure America with Star Parker, and now it's conflicting with me ever getting out of Washington, D.C., including going home. I used to, on a regular basis, get to go to California. I'd leave here in the swamp and go to La La Land, and then I'd leave Gamora and come back here to Sodom. But that uh, has changed quite a bit, uh, but I am still available uh, certain days of the week to get out of here. And so I'm just honored to be here with you. I heard your introductions um, for what schools you're going to and what 
what uh, Congress leaders you're serving and other policy institutes here in Washington. It's just thrilling uh, to be here in front of you. I run the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. We're a policy center. Uh, we promote market-based solutions to fight poverty. We work in welfare reform and all related issues because our mission is to fight poverty, restore dignity through messages of faith, freedom, and personal responsibility. We want the government out of charity and the church back in. So I appreciate um, that some of you are interested in getting things done here in Washington, D.C., so people can live in a free society under God. Our nation is in very serious trouble right now. And the main reason that our nation is in such political and racial and social and economic crisis today is because the progressive left began a three-part culture war on America's founding principles during the 21st century and secured for themselves massive institutional power. First, they scrubbed our schools of all reference from God, which opened this door for a culture of meaninglessness. Second, they undermined marriage with no-fault divorce laws, and they legalized abortion, which opened the door for a, a community and culture of materialism. Third, they established a welfare state through a war on poverty, which opened the door to a culture of melancholy. The resulting damage of these fundamental changes in American culture weakened our nation's respect for the principles of Christianity, the virtues of capitalism, and the rule of law outlined in our Constitution. In 1992, I operated a small publishing business in Los Angeles. It was destroyed as a result of riots that ensued after four police officers were acquitted of excessive violence of, of, of violence charges in the beating of Rodney King. Some of you weren't even born at that time when we had the same type of response we're seeing today uh, with, because of a police officer confrontation uh, with a citizen, a private citizen. For those of you who don't know me and how I even got into this business to even operate my business then uh, in Los Angeles is because I had believed all the lies of the left. I believed much of what we're hearing today on national news anytime we talk about race matters and Things like my problems were somebody else's fault. Things like uh, I was poor because others were wealthy. Things like the country is so inherently racist that I didn't need to mainstream. And as a result of believing those things and not having that groundswell that we have now since then created with conservative young people to fight back, you can buy those lies and get recklessly out of control. And that's exactly what happened to me. I believed those lies and ended up in criminal activity and drug activity and sexual activity, in and out of abortion clinic after clinic, then landed on welfare to raise the child that I had out of marriage. And then God saved me. God came into my life, reformed my life. I went to college, got a degree, started that business in Los Angeles, and then now I'm sitting there in ruins after the riots of 1992. That event was a pivotal point in my introduction into public life and my work today in public policy. I started by consulting on federal welfare reform in the mid-90s so to help change the destructive realities that were taking our distressed communities and the whole nation in the wrong direction. But summer 2020, as I sat bunkered in my apartment here in Washington, D.C., while our nation's capital was being transformed into a war zone, I wondered with the Lord whether we were on the brink of civil war, too. Domestic terrorists were roaming the streets, destroying private property, wanting to destroy our nation, pretending that they were rioting to save it. They defaced the Lincoln Memorial, the World War II Memorial, and they torched St. John's Episcopal Church, where presidents have prayed since 1816. 
No sane American of any ethnicity or political persuasion was not appalled at the horrible death of George Floyd at the hands of a policeman. In an announcement from my organization, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, we called for a national pastoral prayer for America to address the burden of race and rage. I noted in that announcement that George Floyd did not die as a black man, but as a human being under the protection of American laws, and that the moral salt on him inflicted a deep sorrow on every American, not just African Americans. And people who think that it's their duty to express sympathy to black folks must learn how to recognize that their grief is their own and not of some other looking for their generosity. Regarding allegations of racism, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 settled that question and was the declaration in America, in our history, that all citizens of our nation are free to discover their purpose and to build their individual destiny. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a rededication to the rebirth in our nation that we gained through a civil war that we are a free nation under God. It was the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that was a renewal and a revitalization of the founding principles of freedom in our country. Dr. King's civil rights movement was about repentance and revival. This social justice movement that we're dealing with since his death is about revenge and redistribution. And this movement has worked over the last 50 years to institutionalize the perception of racism into all of our public systems post the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Make no mistake, their mantra that America is systemically and systematically racist is a poison that entrenches resentment and division among us, and their dogma will destroy what little decency is still alive in our great country. It is the progressive left that will hinder us from even becoming a more perfect union of eternal truths, limited government, free markets, and a pluribus unum. And thanks to their social justice activism, the progressive left has systematically reduced the fundamentals of citizenship in this country to race. And under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion, their daily hunt for racism from top to bottom in all our systems has elevated the perception of racism into a business that is now embedded in our public policy and in our public institutions. And unfortunately, the illusion of this lie of the social justice movement that's sowing increased distrust and painful racial distancing that conflicts with our actual heartland reality. Most Americans are cordial to their neighbors, they work hand in hand across racial lines, and they just want to be left alone. Most Americans of all ethnic backgrounds and all political and religious persuasions don't want a government built on fairness and equity, but a government built on equal justice under the law. So we have to ask ourselves, those of you that are on campus, you're seeing this division, you're seeing this painful, it, it, it's, it's gotten to the place where if we continue down this road, we will have a civil war. So we have to ask ourselves, why such racial chaos today, 30 years after Los Angeles was torn up and my then business was destroyed? What is driving this heavy emphasis on race and gender, diversity, equity, and inclusion? And why does such rage accompany this social justice movement against any and all who disagree? Well, I think it boils down to a few things. One, and I think the most predominant one, is worldview. What we're in and what some of you may know, depending on what household you come from or what kind of information that you get, 
that we are in a cultural war. We've been in this cultural war for quite some time. Some have pretended that it will just go away. Others have embraced it and are fighting in it. And you may have come from homes where you have seen that we are up against. If there's anything that uh, President Joe Biden has said that's coherent is that America is in a fight for the soul of this country. We are up against a battle for the heart and soul of this country. We are going to, as a nation, either be biblical and free, or we're going to be secular and status. And frankly, I think what free people of faith are up against is the is spirit of arrogance. Arrogance that we do not need the God of our grandfathers and founders. Arrogance that mankind can build a perfect society through the force of government. And one difficulty of this fight against this pagan philosophy, and you know, I've gone back to just saying what King Solomon called it, scoffers. But many people don't read the Bible today, so they don't know what that means. But that's one of the problems, that far too many in our nation today are unchurched. And that's why we're starting to move slowly and now much more rapidly into a pagan society. Far too many Americans today say that they do not believe in Creator God. Thus, they have been lured to believe that mankind has ability to define good and evil without biblical guidelines. So now, after 58 years of social justice activism, building their perception of racism business, today far too many with power inside this beltway, in the unionized media, in corporate business, and in denominational church leadership have convinced far too many others of our fellow citizens that our society would thrive in secular paganism, a culture of meaninglessness, materialism, and melancholy. And the result of their agenda is the destruction of orthodoxy, life, liberty, and private pursuits. Make no mistake what we are really battling when we hear from these social justice warriors and social justice activists in the name of racial equity. Today's social justice war inside our country against our founding principles under the guise of DEI is not about race. It's not about sexual orientation and gender identity, or what we call here SOGI. It's about power. And a major part of their agenda to get power to transform our country into a secular totalitarian state has been to harden the fear of racism and discrimination into black culture which is why after their consistent and coordinated drumbeat to arouse anger and emotion after every negative and criminal incident involving a black and a white, they then roll out statistics to show the glaring inequalities that persist between black and white America. And yes, these statistics are moving and they're relevant, but we must distinguish between symptoms and causes. Statistics are symptoms. They measure and report results. Statistics do not speak to causes. And in my view, very few are thinking about the real problems and causes of racial disparities in America. It's not rocket science to figure out that changes in family structure are at root of the income and education disparities and the lack of social mobility in America today. Generational family is the source of life and growth. Generational families build values and encourage their children in school and out of school. And there's a huge body of evidence that shows the powerful role of generational family in shaping the lives of children and grandchildren. Yet the rate of husbands married to the mother of their children has fallen in half since the 60s. What is being defined as a racial and social 
justice problem in America today is really a subset of a national problem of moral collapse. And this collapse has disproportionately impacted our weakest communities and citizens. And in that disproportionate weakness, people lash out. And at the minute they're asked to hit the streets or pay $25 as BLM is paying for their protesters, 35 if you wear their t-shirt, this is what we are up against when it comes to this war that was created on the left and has now pulled all of us into choosing this day who we will serve. With all of the statistics being reported by the unionized media, you are hard pressed to find reports of the most relevant statistics. A half century ago, America was a different people. In the last 50 years, our common culture has dramatically changed. I'm impressed by young conservative women in this room that you can even maintain those principles amidst where we are today. You know, this is an energy, a physics 101 challenge we're in. You got destructive energy up against creative energy, and destructive right now is winning. And so it's very difficult to navigate through there. And as one of our earlier speakers pointed out, to then not lose everything in front of you as young women because you're just speaking truth. We're where it needs to be told. When Ronald Reagan was president, Roe v. Wade was seven years old. Today, the number of deaths in the womb is 68 million and counting. When Ronald Reagan was president, 20% of Americans got more from government than they put in. Today, 60% of Americans get more from government than they put in and counting. In 1962, 71% of young women were married. In 2019, 42% of young women were married. In 1960, 5% of American children were born to unmarried moms. In 2019, 40% of American children were born to unmarried moms. And interestingly, this survey that just came out, Pew survey in 2020, found only 29% of young adults said that parents of children should be married. And only 16% of men said having children was essential to having a fulfilling life. Now, thank God that there are other organizations like your brother organization, Young America Foundation, that's kind of training up the guys so that you guys can get married and have healthy children. <laughs> and that everybody's not like totally crazy and you're just like wondering what's going to happen to me with that kind of number. Well, there are a few out there in the faithful and God's watching over your life. But even more alarming, what you're against, up against is women. Only 22% of women in that survey said having children is essential to a fulfilling life, while 46% of the women said that their career is more important. One would think that 68 million abortions since 1973 alone would give any decent person in this country a reason to plead for God's mercy. Instead, as you notice, they're shutting the city down again, awaiting this decision from the court, that perhaps they're going to reach a conclusion that we all know deep in our heart. That this is humanity. Abortion is a crime against humanity, and we should not be doing it. The left's war on orthodox religion and conjugal marriage in America has been extremely successful. The result is the moral, social, and economic turmoil we see today. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, one of the questions you have to ask yourself, especially as you're going through career choices, and what is it that we should do? Where do we go from here? What do we do, especially when we know where the political Democrats want to go with current demands of so-called social justice? They're heading our nation into a communistic social order where government controls all aspects of public life. And in that type of controlled environment, there's no room for orthodoxy. There's no room for consistent worldview rooted in the Bible.
What should we be doing when major swaths of our fellow citizens want a godless America with big government? What we do know is that under the Biden administration, progressives in Washington are currently going agency by agency, department by department, to discover and collect. In quotes, they're looking to discover and collect the data to support their claim that America is irredeemably racist because of its roots in Christianity and capitalism. They're holding congressional hearings right next door almost every single week on every aspect of their DEI theory. You know, yet if they were really serious with their goals that they want to build equity, to bridge the wealth gap, then why do they constantly stand in the way of reforms to personalizing Social Security so that low-income workers can enter into the phenomena and the great miracle of compound interest? According to the Pew Research Center, 61% of white families have either direct or indirect ownership in stocks, while only 31% of black families do. Per the Federal Reserve, among white, white Americans aged 35 to 54, 65% have at least one retirement account. Among blacks in the same age range, we have 44% that own retirement accounts, which is one of the reasons that allowing the option to opt out of Social Security is so vitally important to low-income Americans. So why does the left, in their thirst for racial equity, stand to, they stand in lockstep to keep the working poor from being able to put their payroll taxes into an IRA instead of sending it to the IRS? Yesterday, while they were having their little other hearings in national prime time. There were other hearings in the Senate looking into the results of last week's uh, trustees' decisions and report on Social Security and its state of affairs. It's dismal. It's out of order what we've done in our society since the 30s to build up this type of dependency for our retirees to have to depend on big government in a collapsed Ponzi scheme. So a lot to think about with our core foundations of freedom destroyed. But so what can we do? What can the righteous do? Well, here are a few ideas that I want to just explore with you for a few minutes, and then I want to open up for questions. Because we must have questions on this, and I want to leave more time for the questions than making a full 30, 45-minute presentation and only allowing you to. You're in serious, serious challenge trying to go to a university a school of higher learning and then be crippled to not even be able to speak your mind when it comes to such important things. Here are a few ideas that I think conservatives should do in response to the social justice movement to recover our culture and our country. Number one, we have to have aggressive discussion at all political town halls that a country with no sense of law rooted in biblical truth is a nation where we will continue to see the collapse of generational family, the violation of personal property, and the theft. We will also lose our privacy, as many of you already know. Just the way that they can follow you on your phone is pretty scary if you're a conservative and you're mentioning certain words uh, that some think we shouldn't say in the public square anymore. And when I talk about the political town halls, you should do them on your, on your universities too. It's one thing to have a lot of speak, speeches, and we should do that, but it's another to also take on issues of the day and promote our ideas and agenda on those same campuses. Instead of just constantly swatting out flies like what we're having to do now with all of these nominations they keep putting up. 
get aggressive and get into the issues so that, that matter to everyday people's lives so that we can change the narrative and change the discussion. Number two, we need to demand public policies that will reverse all of the laws that were enacted uh, from the 30s and the 60s that collapsed personal responsibility and forced all of us to share space. And I'm talking real aggression. Social Security is one. One size fits all retirement in a government plan that it would be illegal if you're a business set aside. A business can't do that. They can't force current workers to pay for current retirees, especially in a society where we should be very fearful, you should be very fearful that that pyramid turned upside down because far too many women have been convinced that their children are, are hazards and they don't have many as a result. So it's totally upside down and will not sustain itself even for those that think that there's some merit in government controlling our retirement savings. One policy idea that we need to do and demand is respect for life from womb to tomb. We need to wash all of what they've done since Roe v. Wade out of every law in this country, whether it's in the nation's capital or in our local communities, our local states, every single one of them. We have 5,000 pregnancy care centers across this country. We need to push against them when they say we are the people that don't care what happens to the child after it's born. No, it is the Christian community that has always been there for the poor. Others are not there. They, de they depend on government. It's a lie that we're not a benevolent people. And in fact, those that keep saying that, well, you know, it might be a little true that it's still heavy lifting, 20% are doing more than the other 80%, but it's a lie that we're not benevolent. In this country, people give away $400 billion just in this country, $300 billion abroad, and $900 billion a year in taxes into anti-poverty programs that no one can name one that's working. Most people don't want their tax money going into systems that don't work. The rules of welfare are don't save, don't, don't, don't get married, and don't work. This is not a way to help poor people build their communities. We're very laser focused on this at our organization to release and remove all of the barriers that have been set in place over our 8,700 distressed zip codes so that people can live free. We need policy changes, but the first place we have to work is to respect for humanity and respect for life. You can't stop 10-year-olds from being shot down in a school if you're killing people in the womb. This is unacceptable, and we need to be very bold about our pro-life positions and very uh, learned about what is available in the private Christian sector for those that are in need. Second thing we can do is change our housing and health care policies and make sure that they promote individual freedom and flexibility. These are areas, those of you that are, are interning in the congressional offices and the Senate offices may be hearing a little bit about the discussions that are taking place here. Every single thing that Republicans are working on right now to remove barriers that they keep saying that we're going to try to steal from people so they can starve or be kicked out of their home is a movement toward freedom and flexibility so that they can flourish in this beautiful free country of ours. Third thing is policies for parental choice and education. Familiarize yourselves with what's getting ready to happen at that court. While they're over there protesting and, 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 and now threatening the lives of judges because of the decision of Roe v. Wade getting overturned, <laughs> the court is also ruling next couple of days, next couple of weeks, on a main school choice decision. And it's looking really good for us that finally money can follow 
children to schools parents want. No longer will even poor kids be trapped in failing government-funded, union-controlled schools. That main decision following our Espinosa decision that we got during COVID to where the people up there in Montana, one family, God bless Miss Espinosa, took it all the way to the Supreme Court and said, why shouldn't I have been able to take that scholarship that I won and give it to the Christian church that I want, the school I want? Well, in Maine, it's even more fascinating. There are more rules, so they don't have a lot of public schools in every neighborhood, so they've been a voucher state. Go to any school except one that's religious, except one that's Christian. And they sued, and the court heard, and I listened to all the testimony. It was brilliant. And we might win that one. And if we get that one, this is a major victory. Learn the victories of what we have been able to do and start talking about them on your campus on your campuses when you're confronted with this social justice message of you just all are a bunch of racists. If we're just a bunch of racists, why is it that every time we're empowered, black people fare well? How is it that after Trump signed the tax bill into law and, and money started moving around and businesses started hiring, that for the first time in the history of this country, we had more African Americans in year 2019 over $75,000 a year than under $25,000 a year. Where is the press on this one? Where is the press finally saying that, you know what, maybe America really does work even for African Americans, even for those that after history of slavery and Jim Crow and in a welfare state could still be successful. Record numbers of businesses were beginning to open. One of the big, biggest challenges in black community is in the natural progression of transferring, you know, everyone starts struggling. Most of immigrants come in here, they're struggling. That first generation, your granddad, your great-granddad, they were struggling to get that business going. Then that next generation enters into some sustainability. Then that next generation enters into success. And with success, that next one is able to do more, educate, invest, open a business. Well, the problem with black America is we killed 24 million since Roe v. Wade. So that next generation, after the baby boom generation, that generation that should be our investors and our entrepreneurs, were flushed down a toilet. So we have very small numbers now to work with to recover ourselves. And these social justice warriors think that the answer is expanding government. There are many of us that say no, and I want you to say no on your campuses as well. We need policy changes that have been consistent with conservatives that believe in humanity, that believe in talent distribution, that believe that everyone has something that they can offer. And we need to remove all these governmental barriers so that they are living free. In each and every one of those distressed zip codes, most now in major cities in our country, have one thing in common. Government got there before charity. Government got there before corporate. And the next thing you know, you have a community of concentrated poverty, where government owns the schools, government owns the housing, government owns everything in the community. You concentrate it where you have to tell women, if you marry the father of your children, we're going to take your check. So we have concentrations of single moms trying to raise boys in an environment that demands a husband to channel that energy into sports or school, as opposed to into the streets. Make no mistake, those Marxists that are living under that umbrella, nonprofit umbrella, 
called Black Lives Matters are not about black people being prosperous. They're about an agenda to transform this country into a totalitarian state. And ultimately, after we get school choice, which is looking really good right now, the next step is we must insist to leave racial and sexual matters out of all future public policy. Those of you that are studying public policy and are navigating your way and are volunteering in these offices right now, because that little stipend they give you is like volunteering. <laughs> Learn all you can. If you're called to be here, just know one thing. Our job is not to expand government. The role of government is to protect our interests, not plunder them, not pursue them. We have enough people here that say that they're conservatives, that have Republican on their office name, and they're building out government just a little bit more slowly than the left. Let's get all of these things out of public policy, in addition to purging all affirmative action, racial preference, and SOGI language from any existing law. These are the ideas that we're promoting over at CURE, and, I, and I'm fighting here. And I hope that you'll join us, you'll support us. Freedom are the values that you, as conservative women, must fight for in your communities. You must fight for on your campuses. And I pray that you will continue to do just that. Thank you. And I've left. Do I have time for questions? I didn't talk that long. Yes, on purpose. I talked fast so that I could get it done so that they can know. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. What's your name? Thank you. Um, my name Teresa, where, where, what school are you, where are you from? Sorry, I'm from Miami, and I work for Representative Chipotle's office. Okay. So I was wondering, for those of us who believe government going into communities is causal or problems, how do we encourage, I guess, corporations to solve some of these problems? Because it seems like while government's a problem, also you have corporations also promoting pro-choice policies and kind of destroying communities on their own. So how do we create more prosperous communities Oh, thanks for that question. Yeah, yeah, th that's a good one. You know, one of the things I think corporates are learning these days is they need to stay out of business, I mean, out of the out of the political business and stick to what they do, which is to raise some money for their shareholders because they offer a good product to us. One of the major accomplishments uh, of President Donald Trump that got very little press is he signed into law in that tax bill an initiative that was authored by Senator Tim Scott and Senator Cory Booker. It's an Opportunity Zone initiative. I think in my introduction they said that I was part of the task force that um, we were working through ideas. He got in. And what happened with that initiative is then it started to develop out traction, if you will. Uh, what do we do next? There are 8,700 of them. We identified. How did we identify where the exact broken zip codes were? Because Donald Trump carried a very big stick. He made a promise to black people, to poor people, that he was going to fix the inner cities. And even though they didn't vote for him, he still came in here with that promise that I'm going to try to fix this. So he wanted to know how. So, well, he, he's a businessman. He didn't know how. So everybody wanted to tell him how to do it. So when he said, well, where is it? They said, well, it's in the states. So he had every governor have to say, okay, tell me your bottom broken. I want 10% down. And how many governors responded to his call? Y'all know? All 50 states, no one said no to Donald Trump. So that's how we know. We have all of them. We know exactly where they are. And what was in the tax bill? It told corporate. It told money. It told money which is fungible. Money has a nature. That's what King Solomon told us. It's a defense. It has a nature of its own. And its nature is just like us, to reproduce ourselves. 
Its nature is to reproduce itself. So if you tax it over here, it's going over there. So what it was a tax initiative to say, if you go into this community, any one of these 8,700 zip codes, we won't tax you if you keep it there 10 years. Now, if you keep it there seven years, we might do a little tax. And money started saying, really, where? This is the corporate role. The corporate role is, it, it, the, the political role is not to control the corporations. The corporation's job is to offer us a service or product that we want to buy. They need to stay out of trying to micromanage different states and what they're doing with different laws. But where we can get involved are in initiatives like this. So now you've got this one area to where money is trying to get into these zip codes. Unfortunately, the gatekeepers of these communities don't want that money coming in because they like big government. Half the Black Caucus owns most of those structures that then HUD rents from them, that then they become the major slumlords in these districts and let crime go out of control. They like this tension. These are not people that love this country. These are people that want to transform this country because they don't think our country is important. They don't think our country is great. They, they always want to remind us of the one sin. They're like the, the, the person in a marriage that just keeps reminding that other one how bad they were on one occasion, even though they've been married 50 years. They still got to hear that stuff. This is what has happened in our country. So yeah, the role of charity. You know, we tried initiatives in the welfare bill to change uh, matters of charity through the faith-based initiative at the time, but it wasn't a faith-based initiative. It was a charitable choice, meaning that if you go into these structures to get help for yourselves, then, um, you know, you, 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 government is going to remove barriers to say that you can't work it with the church anymore, that there's a separation of church and state. Unfortunately, through that faith-based initiative, they brought it back here to Washington, D.C., under the leadership of George Bush, and it became you know, taking the women off the dole and putting the churches on. And so that initiative collapsed as well. But there are ideas that we should explore. Charity tax credits. You put money into that same zip code that's broken, into any one of those nonprofits that are struggling to try to reverse some of this damage of all of the ill that is taken over, uh, then we'll, you know, give you dollar for dollar tax credit. There are many things that we can explore to try to make this matter worse. A lot of people are concerned about homelessness. What happened? One policy changes what happened. Homelessness used to be at HHS. Those of you that don't speak in the alphabet here, it's Health and Human Services. That's where it used to be. So that the providers of services to help the drug addicted, to help the, the, the alcoholics, to help those that are economically distressed, to help those that are disabled, to help those uh, that are meant to have mental challenges, that's HHS work. Barack Obama knew better. He thought it was a housing problem. There's nothing wrong with these folks. They just don't have a place to stay. So he moved it to HUD. And that $2 billion budget, when it went to HUD, we had about 200,000 homelessness. They doubled the budget to $4 billion, now we have 800,000 homeless. So you get it back where it belongs. There are a lot of policy things we can do to try to rebuild what used to be amazing to live inside a city life, especially during your single life. Yes, ma'am. Oh, somebody, okay, yes, here, and then we'll come to you. Yes. Yeah. What's your name and where? And yes, I don't know if you remember me. My name is Sharice. I met you two years ago at March for Life, and uh, a group, me and a, another group came to your office. Oh, I, you yes. did? Oh, how wonderful. Yes. Thank you. My office, for those of you that want to come, we're two blocks from the White House of Crossroads Press Club, uh, and I have brochures in the back for you. So thank you for doing that, but I no, I don't remember. Question, <laughs> and I it's not, uh, but I wanted to know if you were hiring. 
You actually we are. So probably you should take the brochure, and um, we are expanding because uh, major reason we're expanding right now uh, is because of these things that we're up against as a country. We we really need to address what is broken down to why you have uh, voting patterns. Uh, in the black community that are inconsistent with the uh, third that say that they're evangelical and conservative and the 20 percent that say they're, um, they're conservative. You know, when you think about the voting patterns in our society, uh, and when I talk about voting, I'm not talking uh, Democrat and Republican for political reasons. I'm talking about them for policy reasons. Uh, and when you think about uh, elected officials and they caucus, we want policy leaders that are pushing toward freedom and flexibility. Well, what's happened in our ethnic communities, uh, well, first I'm going to say what happened in our society as a whole. I mentioned a lot about Ronald Reagan and what it looked like on the social questions. Well, on the other question uh, of, of ethnicity, when Ronald Reagan was president, about 88% of the electorate was white. Well, now it's about 70%, and a third of them are liberals, so they're not going to vote for flexibility and, and freedom. So it, there's, a, there's a, a need to really start engaging the ethnic groups that are being told one side of the story, and that is that America doesn't work for us. America doesn't work for any ethnic, so it's us against them. Well, when you look at the two largest ethnic groups in the country and their voting patterns, look at the Asians. The Asian communities, whatever community of Asians they are, they blend them all together and see what those patterns look like. Those patterns, 29% say they're conservative, and Republicans get 29% of that vote. In the Latino community, they blend all the Latino groups together, even though those anyone with any kind of common sense knows they are not all the same, just like the Asians are all the same. Different countries, different people, different cultures, a whole lot of different things going on there. But they blend them all together. So then we look at the data, uh, about 25% say that they're conservative. And if, if immigration is not on that ballot or in that year and hasn't been major discussion, we will get close to 25% of the Latino vote. It's only the black community that say they're 22% conservative, but we get 8% of the vote. Where's the 14%? Well, the data is showing that they have other interests. There is a concern in our society, and especially when you have aggressiveness from the left that continuously tells us that they're out to get you. And every incident where there's between a black and a white, like I just pointed out, they elevate to a national crisis. So people are afraid because the other side is not addressing this at all. And therefore, uh, you will live in that fear. So yes, we have to expand. So yes, I think that you should contact us. And let's look at your skill set. You, you, you already sent an email, you said? <laughs> I, I think you should. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so my question, you're probably much more knowledgeable about this case than I am, but I learned about, I was learning about intersectionality in one of my college classes. And they explained about a Supreme Court case where um, there was a higher standard of scrutiny for, um, I think, race discrimination and a lower standard for gender discrimination. And so it made sense to have um, a different analysis for black women who felt they were discriminated against in both fields. Um, of course, the slippery slope is, you know, now we have oppression scorecards in our school. Right. But how do you respond to that kind of, um, you know, accusation or, or argument that intersectional um, individuals... Like who's the most egregious? Wait, you said there's a court case I'm not familiar with. I, I learned in my, in my class about a, a Supreme Court case in the 90s or 80s of where um, the, the Supreme Court would have analyze like gender discrimination differently than they would have race discrimination. So mm -hmm. black women needed their own kind of 
kind of analysis since they crossed intersectional lines. Oh my, no, I'm not familiar with that at all. But I do know that the, one of the cases that went forth on affirmative action, uh, which is now being looked at again, which is a great thing. In fact, it's wonderful the Asians are saying, you know what, we are not going to do this anymore. We're not going to not be, be based on merit and excel just because you want to take us out of that box and put us where? Not with you and put us with the whites either, but we're uh, looking at another case. But there was a case during that time, and I'm not very familiar, I'm not a lawyer. I know uh, Carrie was supposed to be here, the lawyer. Uh, I'm a social policy consultant, so I work mostly on the congressional, and we work with the clergy and the grassroots. Uh, but yes, there have been cases where you have affirmative action, and then they try to splinter it off into other little people groups, and now everybody wants to come to the party. The only ones that are left out are white males, and uh, not all white males. It depends on which gender they decide they want to be in, and it depends on what, um, uh, where they fall in political lines. Uh, they go to church, they might have problems. So uh, I'm not as familiar, but that gets to what I said in my presentation, that we've got to scrub ourselves of all of these things. And most of them are not in court decisions. Most of them are in these departments. I mean, every one of them have civil rights offices that are being run by just the horrible left. Uh, people ask me why I would go on that committee for civil rights in California um, because, well, one reason is because Trump carries a very big stick and you can't tell him no, uh, even though I was trying to find someone else to do it. And now I'm glad I did because we're actually studying the desperate impact of AB5 on minorities. And, uh, and that, that's a over, union overreach anyway. And it was really fascinating that we were able to get to look into that. But now what's the challenge? The challenge is the same challenge that we have in the different departments and all of these other racial structures that they put in. The right has ignored this for so long that it's entrenched and it's metastasized. We've got to have people that are not afraid to take on these issues, but are actually studying them and come in and that are available to be on these commissions, available to be on these committees, available to be in these offices. During the administration, this last one, and even during Bush's administration, but mostly in, the, in this last administration, there was activity in these departments to where people were coming in that taking jobs that seemed abnormal, if you will, for conservatives to take. But they were doing major things in these departments and, and actually asking for consultation from my organization to try to navigate through of it and end most of it. And then Trump had a rule that if you see, if you want to add a rule, you got to take two away. So we were helping and still helping. In fact, Tim Scott is leading the charge to still look now to see what should we be taking away that's hindering mobility for any other people group. The last thing we need to do as a country is start demanding of all of our fellow citizens to look at ethnicity, sex, um, religion, any of these other factors and make determinations for who should be on first. This is not something we want to do. What if tomorrow they say only redheads? This is not going to work for any of you in the room. Well, maybe one. This is not good where we're going. And it's not even true. We're all Americans. We are the country where anyone from any background, any ethnicity, any persuasion can be very, very successful. But we have to move away from all that has been done to us over the last 50 years on these issues. We've got to get rid of them. Because yes, they're going in now and expanding what was put in place after the Civil Rights Act. When the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64, we should have stopped. But we didn't stop. Johnson wanted to build a great society because he is just like the rest of these pagans that really think that there that that a man can determine or a woman can determine good and evil that we do not need God that we just need a good government bureaucrat and so he began to develop out that idea next thing we know we have a big welfare state 
that's entrenched in every single department. And in that are race components. Every department has those civil rights officers and all the other things that come with um, building out uh, these subsets of Americans so that we begin to hate each other and one gets an advantage just because of something that they had no control over. Yes, ma'am. I'll come here, then I'll go over here. Really? I, I thought I left a lot of time for questions. Well, I'll be around so you ladies ask me questions later. Thanks so much for allowing me to make my thoughts known.